You're tuned in to the MBIT Podcast, led by Seamus Madan. Economic and financial topics broken down. Educating you on your financial journey. Welcome everyone to the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Madan, and today we have a special guest, Michael Gayed, publisher of the Lead Lag Report and portfolio manager at Toroso Investments. I appreciate you taking time to be on the pod today. How are you, Michael? Good, James. How are you? I'm doing good. First off, quick disclaimer, the podcast is not financial advice and is for informational purposes only. Investing is risky, so only risk what you're willing to lose. Um, so, Michael, would you mind uh, introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. No, and I appreciate the um, the invite here. So, better part of the last uh, decade or so, I've tried to build a bit of a name uh, in the investment industry. Had a phase in my life when I was on CNBC and Bloomberg almost every other day doing the punditry nonsense. Don't hold that against me, by the way. Uh, was one of MarketWatch.com's top writers for several years and built a fairly large social media following over time. Uh, nearly half a million Twitter followers, 30,000 plus LinkedIn first connections. What really kind of um, helped get my name out there were these uh, different white papers that I've published since 2014. Uh, five different research studies. Each of them won a different award, two from the Chartered Market Technicians Association, the CMT Association, three from NAME, the National Association of Active Investment Managers. And uh, I spent quite a bit of time on the road presenting the findings of these research studies uh, across the country. I've been to 47 states, presented at pretty much every single CFA chapter and CMT chapter you can imagine multiple times over. And I always like to say that the commonality across all the research, and this is an analogy I've used quite a bit in my interviews, uh, the commonality across all the research is this idea that I may not know the exact mile marker I might crash my car, but I know the conditions that favor an accident. I know when it's raining to slow down, play a risk off. When it's sunny to speed up, play a risk on. And in the context of markets, there are these leading indicators that I'm sure we can get into that help identify the conditions under which volatility is likely to rise or fall in the stock market. And it's important to note, I, I, I come at the research from the standpoint of not just somebody who's talking about it hypothetically. I run three funds, the ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund, the Roro Risk On Risk Off ETF, as well as the newly launched bond fund JoJo, all of them are trying to get to the same place around risk off conditions. Uh, they're just doing so in in different ways. Interesting. And uh, what is your role over at the the Lead Lag Report and Toroso Investments? So the Lead Lag Report, I am the publisher of. That's a premium research service. I've got substantial number of subscribers. Many of them are uh, investment advisors. Um, I always use this tagline that. The focus on the research is on the idea that if you want to in the stock market, you have to not get killed. So I very much live in the world of risk off uh, much more than risk on because alpha really comes from down capture and not up capture. And then at Toroso, I'm a portfolio manager, again, of those three funds under the ATAC fund family. Uh, I also do quite a bit of work with other financial advisors and helping them grow their social media reach and through thought leadership. So multiple uh, multiple hats, but all the same uh, all the same head for the most part. Awesome. And you have a CFA and have worked with uh, other financial advisors. So what do you uh, suggest that beginner investors should be looking at um, when starting to invest in the markets? Well, I've used this line on Twitter before that I think especially today that the 
the level of of uneducated speculation in, in markets is, is astounding. And I say that from the standpoint, which is really addressing your question, which is that a lot of people seem to be entering this field of investing, not really knowing the rules of the game, not studying, not reading, not researching, simply looking at a chart or looking at a meme. And, you know, everyone may be making money in the small sample of the here and now, but, you know, this is a long game. And just because you've made profits today doesn't mean you can't lose all of them and then some tomorrow. So in many ways, experience is the best teacher. But I do think that anybody that's looking at how to grow their wealth should consider not going through the experiences of pain themselves, but learning from the experiences of others and studying just like every other endeavor. If you want to get good at something, you got to put the hours in. Completely agree with you. Yeah, my entire mission of uh, MBIT, Markets Business Investing in Tech, um, podcast is to educate others. Um, I saw it back in January um, when GameStop just soared and so many new people were investing in the markets. I've mentioned it on the pod before. Over uh, 10 million new brokerage accounts were opened in just 2020. Um, and a lot of people don't actually know what they're doing. Yes, they're getting into it, uh, which is uh, which is good. Um, but people should be reading books, watching videos, spending hours, tens of, hour, tens of hours of research um, before they start putting their money somewhere. Yeah, and listen, I mean, God bless those that made a lot of money, uh, you know, taking advantage of those moves. I just don't think that's a viable, sustainable, longer-term approach. You know, look, there's a very fine line between getting lucky uh, and being smart in this business. Um, most people, of course, they think they're smart when they make a lot of money, but, you know, maybe it's a function of randomness and luck and the environment they're in. Over the long term, it's that skill, it's that intelligence that will drive results more than anything else. And again, in my world, that 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 skill comes from navigating the high risk periods, which we haven't seen in some time. But whenever it does come, probably defines quite a few uh, moments that people are, are uh, using as their sort of uh, reasons for why they're so good at this game of investing. But, you know, look, the the the, the surest way to learn something is to be in it. So I always encourage everybody that's seeing the stock market. It's seeing uh, things about the economy to participate. The only thing I'm addressing is that if you're going to do that, do yourself a favor and take it seriously. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I've mentioned on Twitter before, um, you should educate yourself before. And um, if you're worried about getting into the markets, it's not like you have to throw thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars into it. Um, technically, nowadays, you, with fractional shares and investing, you can uh, start with as little as a dollar. And I've seen a lot of people on Twitter ask for what are the best stocks under $40. And uh, I think that could have been a question 10 years ago, um, but I don't think it should be a question that should be addressed anymore. Um, with fractional shares, um, you can pretty much get into any of the major companies, Apple, Amazon, um, uh, Google, Facebook, and any of those um, for as little as a dollar. Yeah, and listen, you know, you know the the math of compounding, right? I mean, you know, it, right. it's it's there's a snowball effect, meaning you start off slow, and then over time it compounds and builds. And as long as you're disciplined and don't get sucked into the sort of uh, temptation, the siren song of uh, going highly levered in some very speculative bet that again could work at least for a moment in time. But you know, the thing with trying to constantly get home runs is that your arms get tired, and at some point you just go through a period of strikeouts, right? So. Um, Again, it's, you know, we live in the small sample. If you want to try to look at this longer term, 
it's not so much about things like stock price. It's really about what's driving market dynamics. How do you navigate market risk? And how do you do so in a systematic way so that you're taking your own emotion out of it, which is oftentimes where most buy and hold investors end up proving that nobody holds. Exactly. It's all a long-term game. And uh, if you're a beginning uh, investor, you should be focusing more um, towards ETFs and trying to pick out individual stocks or meme stocks to make money in the short term. And uh, if you're investing, you should be looking into holding for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, so for a transition here, um, what are your thoughts on uh, other alternative assets? So keep in mind that I think the term alternative is is too often used for things which are not really anything except a variation of beta, uh, meaning variation of what drives the stock market. Look, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about what a portfolio should be from a diversification standpoint, it should be things which can move in one way while another part of the of your portfolio moves in a different way, which is really what an alternative is, which is really just a question of correlation at that point. There aren't that many true alternatives that don't react off of beta, which kind of makes sense. The whole world is driven by risk on. Progress happens from risk-seeking behavior. And risk-seeking behavior tends to correlate, I think, in the same way. The truest alternatives historically you know, tend to be things like gold, things like tactical strategies like what I do in the ATAC fund family, uh, maybe some currencies. Cryptocurrency could be part of that alternative sleeve, although... I think that remains to be seen because to a large degree, I think Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies are still really just plays on reflation and money printing, which is exactly what drives stocks. Um, you know, it's just a, it's just a levered play on, on equities to some extent, I would argue uh, that could change. Right. But I think yet when you think about alternatives, there really aren't that many true alternatives because most things are just degrees of sensitivity to the economy. Yep. That makes sense. And, uh, down the road, like maybe 10 or so years from now, I know you touched on it a little bit, um, but do you see crypto uh, like Bitcoin as a possible replacement for gold um, down the road? And I know currently Bitcoin and uh, other crypto is generally aim, uh, increasing in price just because of uh, the entire inflationary aspect of the economy. Um, but what about in the next five, 10 years? Well, I mean, you yeah. know, as you, I always use this line, as Yogi Berra once said, predicting is hard, especially about the future. So, you know, the, the longer your time frame, the harder it is to get visibility because the more butterfly effects there can be between now and, and, and that point in the future. What I would say is that, is there a possibility that Bitcoin uh, eats the world? Sure. Of course there is. I don't, is it a high probability? I have no idea. You, you don't know what the future holds. And there are so many different paths and ways the future can play out that I think it's hard to have too much conviction in any single thesis. Maybe Bitcoin ends up truly being digital gold. I actually think that most Bitcoin investors don't want it to be because if it's digital gold, gold hasn't done anything for 10 years. Right. So, I mean, we use these analogies, but it's like, you know, what are you investing for? Are you investing because you want to make money or it's because of something else? You do need to make money. You actually don't want the argument that it's a store of value. You want the argument that's an investment. Store value is not supposed to move much. It's supposed to be something that just keeps up with your personal rate of inflation. It's not something you necessarily gain off of from a net purchasing power perspective. So, right. you know, I, I think the space obviously has tremendous potential, tremendous opportunity. I do think this space has a lot of fraud, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm sure we can also kind of get into. And you can see that even in social media, the number of Twitter bots that go off that clearly are talking about cryptocurrency it doesn't even necessarily have to be Bitcoin. 
but clearly are just like pump, uh, pump and dump type uh, uh, tweets that go out there. Um, it's, it's a space that makes sense. I understand where the sentiment comes from. I disagree with the notion that it's a surefire uh, bet for the future. Just like I disagree for that notion for the idea that stocks are for the long run. Yep, that makes sense. And uh, what going uh, going back to gold a little bit, what is the lumber to gold ratio, and uh, why is it important? So, if you follow me on Twitter on at Lee Lagerport, you see that I have a pinned tweet uh, talking about this lumber to gold relationship, and this is one of the relationships outlined in one of the five award-winning white papers I mentioned earlier. And it's gotten quite a bit of attention this year because of the surge that lumber had and then the crash that followed starting when it peaked out in early May. Now, it's a strange concept. Why would lumber and gold tell you anything at all about the stock market? And despite all the people that seemingly are not realizing that they're tweeting at me about why it's not valid from their home, which has a whole bunch of lumber in it, the link in that lumber to gold relationship to the stock market is housing. So we know that housing is a leading indicator of the economy. Most people's wealth is in their homes. The average home has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. So it stands to reason that if housing is a leading indicator of the economy, well, then lumber by extension must be as well. So as lumber performs, there's implications on what it suggests for growth, inflation, credit creation, so on and so forth. Gold, on the other hand, is more of a safe haven commodity, meaning that when you have these high risk periods in the stock market, gold for a moment in time tends to do fairly well. So when you compare lumber to gold, it actually tells you a lot about risks. Now, one of the key stats in that paper shows that going back to 1986 on a rolling 13 week basis, if lumber is doing better than gold, just straight up performance differential up more down less, the S&P 500 volatility on average is around 12 and a half percent. So the stock market volatility is relatively low. If, however, gold is outperforming lumber, the S&P 500 volatility rises quite a bit to an average of 17%. And whenever I talk about that finding, that stat, I always like to emphasize that for anybody that's followed me that sees this, this that I talk about this notion of risk on, risk off. Whenever I talk about risk on, risk off, I'm not talking about direction in the stock market. I'm not talking about trend. Really, what I'm talking about are changing volatility dynamics. Risk on is a lower average stock market volatility, lumber outperforming gold historically on average. Risk off is higher stock market volatility, gold outperforming lumber. And that matters because it's in those higher volatility states when you tend to have the accidents. So historically, nearly every single major crash correction and bear market has been preceded by weakness in lumber relative to gold. But... That doesn't mean that every time lumber relative to gold is weak, you have a crash. It's that when you have a crash, it tends to already be weak. And this is actually, I think, a really important point. I keep using this analogy that just because it's raining doesn't mean you'll crash. Just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't. There are always false signals. There are always times where with hindsight, a, an indicator you're following, which you can quantitatively prove, doesn't work. That's okay. As long as you are you you have an opportunity set that allows you to be wrong in your signal, but still make money while you're wrong, that's fine, right? I mean, ideally, right? You want to have when you think about investing, you don't want to always always think about you know always being right. You want to think about being wrong but still making money when you're wrong. Right. And um, what is the 
I, you mentioned uh, uh, gold increasing in price with the S&P uh, 500 having a higher than 12.5% return rate. I mean, we saw that uh, back in 2020 and uh, continue to see that a little bit this year as well. Um, and is it a cause and effect relationship or is it just something um, that is analyzed uh, historically? So, so to be clear, it's more that it's the volatility, not the return. So sort of the variability around okay. uh, the performance, right? So but what is there causation there? Aside from the, the lumber aspect of it, it's because whether it's lumber relative to gold, utilities against the stock market, which is another risk on risk off trigger, or long duration treasuries against intermediates, again, all these outlined in the papers, all of them used in some way, shape or form in the, in the various funds I run. The reason why they're all anticipatory of risk is because uh, they're all sensitive to interest rates. Utilities are the most bond-like sector of the stock market. Treasuries are interest rates. Lumber to gold is about housing, which is about mortgage rates. So everything is ultimately about degrees of sensitivity to the demand for capital. And if the demand for capital is falling, you would expect liquidity is falling, which means volatility likely rises. Again, I keep going back to risk matters more than uh, risk off matters more than risk on, even though they're relatively infrequent. If over the last 20 years, you said to yourself, okay, let me only get 50% of the S&P 500's upside and 50% of the S&P 500's downside, you would have destroyed buy and hold 100% all in, even though you're only capturing half of the upside. Why? Because we know the math of this. You go down 50%, you have to double to break even. Right? But it's hard for people to intellectualize that, especially in environments like this, which goes back to the experience part, when in the small sample, it's purely up and to the right, it's purely risk on, it's purely memes, it's all fun and games until the margin call and the volatility happens. And that's why I'm so manically focused on trying to protect against the accidents. Interesting. And um, in relation to lumber and gold, should we just use it as uh, something that we can analyze the markets off of, or should we also be allocating some of our portfolio uh, to these alter- uh, to lumber and gold and other assets? So I, I don't I don't view the lumber to gold um, side of it as really um, investing in lumber or in gold, but more as a signal for stocks and bonds. And having said that, look when you want when do you want more diversifiers and more alternative uh, assets like gold? You want it when you're towards the tail end of a bull run. Right. You want less alternatives and more correlation to beta towards the tail end of a bear run. After a big decline is when you want to go aggressively all in to bet on the rebound. You want to actually take more concentration risk towards the tail end of a bear market, not towards the tail end of a bull, which I think is what's happening with the fangs of the S&P 500. So in, and if that's the case, if you view the, the role of alternatives in a portfolio, in terms of where you are in the cycle, then you want gold the longer a bull market has persisted. You want uh, other diversifiers, you know, the longer a bull market has persisted, which is kind of where we are now. It's not one of those things where I would say you go all in a portfolio. You simply diversify, have a portion of your investments in that. Um, because the the longer some cycle persists, the more likely it is to reverse. And um, in, re- in terms of the market bubble, do you think... Do you see us in a current market bubble? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, some people mistakenly think I'm being bearish on markets because I keep referencing, you know, there might be a crash given the way lumber to gold is behaving because historically that's what's happened. It's not my opinion. Same deal with the utility strength. And more often than not, it tends to get ahead of high risk periods. And some people think I'm a perma bear for saying that. But March 31st, 2020, I put a piece out on Seeking Alpha 
titled Why the COVID-19 Bubble is Coming. I was actually wildly bullish towards the lows. Surprise, surprise. So I don't, I'm not wedded to any particular viewpoint on markets. Now, is there, what was my reasoning for the COVID bubble, you know, a year plus ago when I wrote that? Uh, it was that the policymakers would overstimulate, that they would throw so much more money at this than was probably needed when the world wasn't ending in the way it was being portrayed at the time, that you could get a crack up boom in all risk assets. And that's happened, right? And of course, there are, there were some junctures in the periods between then and now where it looks like it might reverse and then the market kept on going higher. To me, the the it's it's a it's a nuanced conversation because it's not a bubble in the traditional sense, except in perhaps one uh, uh, one way, which is that the real bubble I've always referenced in the past, which I just still think is there now, is faith in the Federal Reserve, faith in the central banks to save the system. This notion that there is no risk because the Fed will do whatever it takes to always prop up the markets—that to me is what the bubble is. If that were to ever burst, and that remains to be seen, that's going to jump just re result in more volatility. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a bear market. It just means you're going to have more opportunities to buy low. Yep. And uh, Yellen was uh, quoted saying that there'll be several uh, more months of uh, rapid inflation. Um, so with the government pouring these trillions of dollars into the economy, um, what could the impact be on uh, the U.S. economy in the long run? Yeah, so this is what's tricky. I, I'm not of the opinion that this infl inflation story is longer term uh, at all um, okay. in the absence of universal basic income, which is a, a different discussion. The reason I'm saying that is because you can't have inflation without deflation and back and forth. The, what's the response by policymakers to every single crisis? It's to re-leverage. It's to lower rates. It's to print more money. But what does that do? It increases debt. Well, the more debt increases, the more disinflationary or deflationary that is. So you had this huge re-leveraging boom. You have seemingly nobody in the government thinking that debt matters. So debt keeps on increasing. The more debt there is, the more fragility there is in the system. Full stop. I don't care what anybody says about the Fed's superpowers. The more debt you have, that is the necessary precursor to a black swan appearing, an extreme exactly. decline. Yeah. So if that's the case, and you keep on having this ever-increasing level of debt, it means you're going to see these 1,000-year events happening once every couple of years which means that you keep on having the debt load increase ever more and more. And all that ultimately ends up being disinflationary, deflationary, right, in the longer term. So it's kind of a, a long-winded answer, but my response to what all this money printing is doing is that it's doing the exact opposite of stabilization. It's actually making the system much more fragile longer term because you're not flushing out the excesses and you're making this a, a, a world where everything's a liability. For sure, and I love how you uh, mentioned the uh, black swan events because not a lot of people uh, understand that when uh, investing in the markets. Um, they'll only look at uh, historical uh, things that have happened in the past, um, but history is history, and that's not always going to be what's going to happen in the future. And uh, events in the markets can come out of nowhere. It's important to understand that when you're investing in the markets. And that goes back to the, the, the education aspect of it, right, which is that, you know, this is, it's like, so when people say to say like, you know, what's your batting average when it comes to trades? You know, sorry, but the notion of a batting average is total bullshit. The reality is that when it comes to investing, because there's tails, there are these black swans, because a, a few data points can define a whole data set. 
when you have that type of dynamic, you cannot rely on anything that keeps on getting you on base. You cannot rely on those small gains that you're scraping and scalping, making every single day. You can't rely on that single snog that made you a ton of money and think that's going to repeat because, you know, for all you know, the next day something could gap down in a massive way. So, and that's where the humility of, of realizing that nobody can tell the future comes in. Yeah, I, 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 I keep using this line that there are no gurus, there are only cycles. Cycles tend to change when you have black swan events, when you have those extremes. Uh, those extremes, they're not going away. If anything, they're going to be only accentuated by the sheer amount of leverage. And, and again, I go back to that term, uneducated speculation, which everyone seems to be now expressing in markets. By the way, very smart people too, right? Meaning like people that are in, in the industry that should know better are getting caught up in this wave. Um, and again, it goes back to, if, if I'm right, the fragility in the system is increasing. Well, then, you know, the more diversifiers, the more risk on, risk off, the more tactical and more alternative, the more you learn about prior busts, uh, the more you, you, you kind of think through all that, the more likely you are to survive when nobody else will. Right. It's important to stay educated and uh, make sure to not put too much risk in uh, your portfolio, especially nowadays. Um, and all right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you for joining us on the MBIT podcast. And uh, thank you, Michael, for taking some time to be on the pod. It was a pleasure, and I hope to have you back in the future. I appreciate it. Thank you. Follow the pod so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star review down below, and I will see you in the next episode. Disclaimer. The MBIT podcast is reflecting the opinion of only the host. The podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is also not a research report. It is not a recommendation to purchase or sell any stocks, holdings, or securities. The podcast is also not meant to serve as the basis of any investment decision.